Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Just a quick piggyback off of some of what Andre was saying in terms of announcements. He, he, he said this, I just want to reinforce it. You know, the, the graduate celebration this Wednesday is for the entire church. It's for all of you. It's not simply a youth event. And so uh, that has been a wonderful time of church life together in years past, and I trust it will be uh, this Wednesday as well. And then if those of you who, who may be inclined, if God impresses upon your heart to contribute toward sending a student to camp, uh, I believe the full, the full amount is 475, 475 if that's a full scholarship. But I know that, uh, that they would be appreciative of even a partial scholarship if any of you are so inclined. You can see Andre if you need more information. I want to begin with a question, just for your consideration. I want you to think about how you would describe the word peace. I want you to just take a moment and consider how you might picture peace. And what comes to mind when you think of peace. Not really looking for a, a, a word definition, per se, but a picture, an image. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think of just the wonder of creation. So you, so you, may, you may picture like just this breathtaking sunset or, or a, a mountain vista or ocean waves just gently lapping onto a quiet shore maybe you maybe you maybe you think of nations at peace and the end of war maybe maybe you simply think of getting away from the rigors of routine to enjoy some peace and quiet. Whatever the case, perhaps you imagine a life devoid of trouble where all is as it should be. There's a well-known painting of peace that portrays the violence of a crushing storm. It depicts waves crashing against jagged rocks, water pouring furiously from above, lightning that pierces dark and ominous clouds. It, it seems anything but peaceful, this picture. And yet, Near the bottom of the painting, down low, tucked away in a cleft of a rock, is a small bird sitting peacefully in her nest, apparently oblivious to the storm that rages on. Have you ever experienced peace like that? 
Is it possible to experience peace like that? Last week, we considered just one verse, John 14, 27. And I said that the words of this one verse are among the most comforting you will ever hear, that we cannot overstate the immense value of this single verse. Though just one verse, its truth literally affects every aspect of your life. No matter what you're facing today or ever will face, however difficult or unexpected, John 14, 27 can make all the difference. Here, Jesus offers something of great and personal worth, the gift of peace. His peace. And so we talked about the legacy of Christ's peace and the, and the quality of Christ's peace. We talked about the distinction that Christ uh, made between the peace He gives and the way in which the world gives by comparison. And finally, uh, the verse ends with Christ's call to peace when He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here, we find this clear imperative, an exhortation, which means we have a choice to make. Will we allow the various troubles of life to rob us of Christ's gift of peace, or will we walk with Jesus even in our troubles and therefore know His peace even when the storms of life rage on? Jesus is calling us to something more, something beyond our worldly cares. He offers a gift and he calls us to take hold of it. And the way to take hold of Christ's uh, peace is to take hold of Christ himself through faith. For the promise of peace is, is realized in the person of Christ. And as John 14 draws to close, Jesus elaborates. What follows verse 27 supports verse 27 and indeed supports the entire chapter. And the point is this, that knowing the peace of Christ means trusting Christ and trust in Christ counteracts a troubled heart. Okay? Knowing the peace of Christ means trusting Christ. And trust in Christ counteracts a troubled heart. So let's read it together. John 14, 27 through 31. Jesus says, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. And so, Father, we pray for your help now as we consider your word. As Jeff prayed earlier, help us to hear your voice. Help us to see the wonder of Christ and his call to peace. And help us to believe and trust him. Amen. After calling us to peace in verse 27, Jesus, in the four verses that follow, makes four important statements that that I think help us answer the call. These are statements that encourage faith in the Lord, and each one carries an implicit uh, application that moves us from a troubled heart to a heart at peace. In other words, a heart at peace. Here's my outline. A heart at peace rejoices in the glory of Christ. That's verse 28. Remembers the promise of Christ. Verse 29. Rests in the reign of Christ, verse 30, and relies on the love of Christ, verse 31. First, a heart at peace rejoices in the glory of Christ. In verse 28, Jesus brings much-needed perspective, redirecting the disciples' attention away from their limited view to Christ's view of what was really taking place. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And when Jesus talks about the Father being greater, he means greater in terms of their specific roles within the Godhead, not intrinsically greater, for they are equally divine in every respect. But when he came from heaven to earth, Jesus laid aside a measure of his divine glory, which is so well stated in Philippians chapter 2, you know it, verses 6 and 7, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of men. And so while the Father retained all of His glory, Jesus temporarily set some of His aside. On earth, He knew pain and suffering and sorrow like never before. As a full-fledged human being, He was restricted as never before by self-imposed limitations Now, however, he was returning to the Father and thus to the full glory that had been his. 
In fact, later in John 17, he'll pray, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The issue here is the glory of Christ. And we mustn't misunderstand this because, you see, some take this statement to say that Jesus is admitting to being less than God. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not stripping himself of his divine nature, but rather he's subordinating himself before his divine Father with whom he and the Holy Spirit share divine fellowship uh, for all eternity. He would soon return to heaven and reassume the fullness of his glory, which should have thrilled the disciples rather than trouble their hearts. You see, we need to see. East Parkway, we need to see that Jesus, in love, is gently rebuking them here. They are dismayed that he is leaving them, and their dismay from, is understandable, I guess, from one point of view, that is, from their limited point of view, But had they been thinking of him rather than themselves only, they would have moved beyond the trouble of their circumstance to rejoice instead in the triumph of their Savior. Does that make sense? Maybe this illustration is helpful. Isn't this what separates? Isn't this... What separates, what makes a Christian funeral unlike any other. When our loved ones die in Christ, of course we grieve our loss. But at the same time, we glory in their gain. Of course we miss them. And we're saddened by their departure. But because we know that they are with God and and in the presence of the Savior, they love so much and who so dearly loves them, our love for them compels us to rejoice with them. Our gladness over their gain actually serves to combat our momentary grief, does it not? And so one way to know Christ's peace is to allow your love for Jesus to shape or inform or frame your expectations of Jesus. When our hearts grow troubled, perhaps more perhaps then more than at any other time, we need to ask ourselves, how does this 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 job loss or this debilitating illness or this, uh, this unjust criticism for another or this, uh, this unexpected expense or this you fill in the blank. How does this glorify Christ? How can I honor and even rejoice in Jesus in this circumstance 
for his glory rather than find fault with him for it in the seeking of my own. You see, if Jesus is laying down a a gentle rebuke here, I think we need to ask ourselves, could it be that you, like the disciples then, have certain expectations of Jesus that are more self-centered than Christ-centered? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. To look beyond your perceived loss and see instead from the divine point of view. And ironically, what they were lamenting as loss, in fact, became their greatest gain. Same with us. By God's design, that which glorifies Christ most, in this case, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, also blesses us best. So let not your heart be troubled. Rejoice in the glory of Christ. Next, a heart at peace remembers the promise of Christ. In verse 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So he's telling them what's coming next, so that when it comes, it would not shake their faith, but rather cause their faith to grow stronger. Throughout this chapter, really the entire discourse, Jesus gives them his word. One promise at a time. Already, he's promised them a home in heaven, verse 2, a place in God's house which he will prepare himself. He is Promise to come back for them and take them and be with them. Verse 3. He is the way to God. He reveals the truth of God. He secures life with God forever. And He's promised to be this for each of them. That's verse 6. And in the meantime, He's promised them fruitful ministry on earth. They would continue in His work and do even greater works as ministers of His gospel. That's verse 12. He's promised to hear when they pray and to do for them whatever they ask in His name to God's glory. That's verses 13 and 14. He's promised them the Holy Spirit, the Helper who will indwell them and empower each of them. Verses 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit will make their hearts a home for God. Verse 24. And will teach them the ways of Christ. Verse 26. And here... In verse 27, he promised them peace. And all of this is meant for their comfort, for their assurance, for the upbuilding of their faith in him. You see, he promises these things. And in verse 29, he assures them that what's coming next, what's coming next, though it's catching them by surprise, is not a surprise to him at all. He gives them the heads up so that as things unfold, they will remember that it happened just as He promised. 
Christ's departure and this announcement of His departure is meant to encourage their faith. Christ's death and resurrection and ascension will combine to lay the foundation of their faith. That Jesus tells them this beforehand, before any of it happened, would help fuel their faith. The promise He makes to them now that they don't yet understand or appreciate its fullness would soon be for them a great source of faith. So picture them here on that Thursday evening in the upper room hearing these words. They're troubled and afraid. Picture them the next day, the Friday of Christ's crucifixion, and they're scattered and unsure. And then picture them just a couple days later on the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. And suddenly they're surprised and they're hopeful. And picture them during those 40 days of living with Jesus post-resurrection, how their confidence grew in Him day by day. Picture them on Mount Olivet as they worshipped Jesus there. And they received the great commission. And they saw Him ascend into heaven before their very eyes. And then picture them in that room in Jerusalem. There are about 120 disciples in total. And they're praying and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then picture that great day of Pentecost when the Spirit came to them and upon them just as Jesus said He would. And all that took place within less than two months' time from what Jesus was telling them right now, right here in John 14. You see, within that relatively short span, they went from troubled and afraid to confident and courageous. Their faith had grown stronger. Why? What happened? What made the difference? It's that they saw the promises of Christ coming true. They they saw Christ's promises unfolding just as He said they would. Jesus called them to trust Him. Today, tomorrow, and all their tomorrows to come. And He's calling us to do the same. we're reminded again that faith in Christ is not a one-time proposition but a lifetime of trusting Jesus. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let not your heart be troubled. Remember the many promises of Christ. Third, a heart at peace rests in the reign of Christ. I will no longer talk much with you, he says in verse 30, for the ruler, is, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. 
The ruler of this world is none other than the devil himself, which explains why the way of this world is fundamentally opposed to the way of God. The age-old problem of evil and suffering owes directly to Satan's rule. Beginning with the fall itself, Satan called into question God's goodness and grace, and people have been doing the same ever since. Sin came into this world through Satan's deception, and sin's devastating effects have run rampant under Satan's sway. The war between good and evil is very real, but it is not a war between equals. Satan is on a short leash. His rule is limited and temporary. In God's perfect wisdom, for reasons we cannot always comprehend, Satan is allowed a measure of influence for a relatively short measure of time. But his time is coming. East Parkway, hear this, for whereas Satan may rule, Jesus reigns. The ruler of this world is coming, Jesus declares. He has no claim on me. What an amazing statement this is. He has no claim on me. That the greatest force of evil to ever exist has absolutely no authority over Jesus Christ. It's actually a somewhat difficult phrase to render in English. I think James Montgomery Boyce says it best when he says there, there was no sin in Christ for Satan to latch on to. That's quite a statement. Sin is what gives Satan his power. It's our indwelling sin. It's our sinful nature that Satan preys upon. But Jesus is without sin, and therefore Satan has no claim on him. I want you to see here how calmly Jesus deals with the devil's approaching attack. He is not troubled. He is not afraid. He is not nervous. He, he is not worried. He has absolutely no doubt about the final outcome. The victory is his, and he knows it. With this statement, Jesus asserts his absolute authority as God. He is in complete control. Please hear that, that he is in complete control. Because so much of our worry, is this not true? That so much of our worry owes to our want of control. We like control. We like having control over our lives, our priorities, our resources, our schedules, our circumstances. Think about it. Most of our decisions are based upon our desire for control. Not a day goes by, we might even say, not an hour goes by when we are not trying to arrange and rearrange the many details of our lives. We want control. 
Now, not all control is bad or wrong. Even God has given us a measure of control because implicit in the mandates of creation and even recreation, in the mandates of our life before God and our new life in Christ is is a measure of control. In other words, there's this expectation that we will align our lives according to God's good will, which obviously requires some self-control on our parts. So our desire for some control is not necessarily wrong as long as it stays within its God-given place. Even as our, our uh, life group learned this last week, even a desire, even a good thing, is a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Even a good thing is a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And I think that's some of what's going on here with the disciples' troubled hearts. To them, things were spinning out of control. Out of their control. But Jesus is assuring them that He reigns. He reigns over their lives. He reigns over every one of their circumstances. He reigns even over the devil himself. All that they were facing and about to face, all he was facing and about to face, as difficult as it was, fell safely within the scope of his full control. I think Jesus wants to remind us this morning, you, everything in your life today, everything in your life, falls safely within the scope of his full control. So let not your heart be troubled. Rest in the reign of Christ. Rejoice in the glory of Christ. Remember the promise of Christ. Rest in the reign of Christ. Finally, a heart at peace relies always on the love of Christ. The ruler of this world is coming, Jesus announces. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. By preparing them for what's coming, Jesus is assuring them that Satan's apparent victory at the cross wouldn't be his win at all, but Christ's. Who loves and obeys the Father, even as Jesus wants them to love and obey him. Note carefully these words. I do as the Father has commanded me. The focus is on his obedience. His doing. Jesus went to the cross willingly under his own volition in loving obedience to God the Father. Were, were others involved in his death? Absolutely. Did they conspire against him? Absolutely. Will they be held accountable for their sin against the Son of God? Absolutely. 
but Jesus could have put an abrupt stop to it at any moment. He could have called for legions of angels at any moment. No one took his life from him against his will. He freely gave his life in obedience and love for the Father. You see, Jesus delighted in the Father and therefore delighted to obey the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He loves the Father. But I think there's another aspect of Christ's love in play here, and it's evidenced in the worldwide implications of the cross. Jesus wants the world to know of his love. You know, when I was reading this this week, it seemed surprising to me, this statement. I could think of a number of ways to complete this sentence. I want, I want the world to know that I reign. I want the world to know that I'm worthy of worship. I want the world to know that I can be trusted. All of these are true. And yet Jesus says, I want the world to know that I love the Father. He wants the world to know of his love for the Father, which implies love for the world as well. These two loves are not competing, but complementary. They're like two sides of the same coin. Because Jesus loves the Father, he necessarily shares in the Father's love for the world. The two are one. And because Jesus loves the world, he freely obeyed the Father who appointed his Son to die for sinners and bear their sin on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus knows that the whole world will someday hear of the cross. Think about that. And that their hearing, their very hearing, will be for them an act of love. Jesus, at this point of time, Think through this with me. At this point of time, Jesus was a relatively obscure man in the world's estimation with 11 even more obscure disciples in an obscure room in Jerusalem. Within hours of this very conversation, he would die in relative obscurity. But when he rose from the dead on the third day, things begin to change. And when he ascended to heaven, everything changed. And when the Holy Spirit came in power, just as he promised, it all changed. What began as an obscure group of Christ followers became emboldened disciples who preached the good news of Christ to great effect and literally turned the world upside down. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and this great news of Christ's redeeming love has gone forth ever since penetrating and overcoming the hearts of men and women of all ages, saving them from their sins while simultaneously restoring them to God. It all owes to the love of Christ. 
the very fact that you're here today hearing these words owes to the love of Christ. When I asked you earlier how how you picture peace, I think here we find that peace is best represented in the cross. At the deep, deep, deep love of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus has saved you from the greatest danger you can ever imagine, from sin and death and hell and permanent and eternal separation from God and everything good, if Jesus has saved you from the greatest Danger you can ever imagine. Be assured that his saving purposes are still very much alive and active in your life today. So let not your heart be troubled. Rely always on the love of Christ. How do we move? From a troubled heart to a heart at peace? By trusting Jesus. By entrusting our lives to Jesus. By walking with Jesus each day. Because knowing peace comes by knowing Christ. Therefore, rejoice in the glory of Christ. Remember the many promises of Christ. Rest in the absolute reign of Christ. And rely always on the deep, deep love of Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Amen. We bless you this morning for your word. I look out here and I look upon the faces of these dear people. I look into their eyes and in some cases I feel like I can see into at least some of what's going on in their lives. And I pray for them, Father. And I pray that you would help us all to trust Jesus. To entrust ourselves to Jesus. To walk with Jesus each day by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Will you please do that? 
And will you rescue and free us from our troubled hearts that we may rather rest in the triumphant Christ. Through his name we pray. Amen.